0: This is the Ultra Running History Podcast. I'm your host, Davey Crockett. Thanks. Thanks for coming. This is episode 152. In this episode, I will include my interview on the very good Trail Runner Nation podcast. I recently went on it to talk to the guys about my new book, Classic Ultramarathon Beginnings we discuss several of the very early ultras in our history. I hope you enjoy it and will support my podcast by buying the book on Amazon.
1: Welcome to another edition of Trail Runner Nation. My name is
2: Don Freeman. And I am Scott War. And, you know, being part of this trail running, ultra running tribe, it helps to know a little bit about our past, a little bit about our history. And we thought, Who could better tell us about history than our historian for ultra running? Today, we're going to talk with Davy Crockett about that history and what he learned as he wrote his newest ultra running history book. This is the seventh in that line. It's called Classic Ultra Marathon Beginnings. The book delves into the history of ultramarathons dating back to the late 19th century, exploring iconic races like the Comrades Marathon in South Africa and the London to Brighton race, underscoring their historic significance. He also dives into other classics like the Barclays Marathons, JFK 50, the Redwood Enden Marathon, which I was not familiar with. Davey debunks the myths of ultra running beginning as a recent trend. So Davey, thanks for joining us.
0: Glad to be here. Thanks for having me on again. Races over the years have claimed that they're the oldest, the longest, the first, the toughest, (laughs) and so forth, without understanding the history behind it. For example, for many years, people thought Western States was the first trail ultra. There are at least nine others worldwide that were before Western States that ran on trails and even on mountain trails and even were 100 milers. I researched the longest-held ultras in the world to help people when they start making these claims. And the oldest one that is still held today is the Comrades Marathon in South Africa. It's a point-to-point race. They alternate directions now every year. One's called an uphill direction, and one's a downhill direction. It's about 54 miles, and it started in 1921. It had a few years where it wasn't held in World War II and during COVID, but it has been held for 96 years. It's a road one, but it started back in 1921 all on dirt road, ruddy dirt road, mountainous. Certainly, we would have called it back then a trail ultra. And it started only with 34 people. It was called Comrades to honor the fallen comrades in World War I. But it grew. It had its biggest year was some anniversary year where they allowed twenty four thousand runners. Oh wow! The
1: race, yeah. So a lottery race.
0: (laughs) (laughs) It's really big. It's the oldest and the largest, and has so much history behind it.
1: What's the appeal to that, uh, Davy? What? Why do you think twenty four thousand people suited up and laced up that day to do that race? What? What makes comrades so special?
0: Well, certainly in South Africa, I think it's the biggest sporting event that they have during the year. Mm. So it's very dominated by South Africans. Took a while for it to become an international race, but it has been. Camille Heron has, has won it. So it's really a dominant race in our history.
2: I want to get back to that 96 years this thing has been run. And just to compare and not to diminish Western states, but Western states is only half as old, has only been around for 45 years. So this is double that. Davy did a really good job in the book, which you have to get on page 255 of the book in the very back. He actually lists 36 of the oldest ultra marathons. And you can go through here and just look down the list to see which ones came before the ones that you might think were old.
0: Now that chart, if you buy the book now, it has 49 races listed because once I published it at first, there was various race directors that helped me find some other races that I had missed. And so it's
2: pretty complete now. Hey, David, let's talk about the second oldest one on the list. I think I've heard about it, but I know absolutely nothing about it. It's the London to Brighton 52-mile race in London.
0: It's a classic point-to-point course, and it started back in the 1800s as people tried to figure out if they could walk between Big Ben in London to Brighton on the on the seashore, the aquarium there. I think they are basically trying to figure out fastest known times to either walk it, to bike it, and as automobiles appeared, automobiles would try to see how fast they could do it. So it was in 1899 that the first running race, and it was a running race, not just a walking race, was held between the two points. So it was held not regularly every year for a while, but in 1909, it became pretty famous as the Stock Exchange in London put together a race, a walking race between London and Brighton for their clerks. They felt it would be a good morale booster for their (laughs) clerks to try to do 52 miles. And so they they held it on a banking holiday and (laughs) established that. And After a while, London to Brighton and back became popular. So a 100-mile race was held for quite a few years, mostly a walking race again in those early years. It was in, I think, 1951 that the running race was established. Finally, it became an annual race in the 50s, and it emerged into truly during the late 50s, 60s, and early 70s. It was really the world championship for ultra running. (laughs) It was where ultra runners from many countries would come and test themselves on this famous course. And that's really what motivated the start of ultras in the United States even.
1: Was there a time, Davey, that running started out as pedestrianism and then because of the competition, someone said, you know what, I'm going to win by running this thing. Was there a part that some point in history that things swapped from pedestrianism to ultra distance running?
0: Well, it it kind of went back and forth. In the early pedestrianism, from my early books, Edward Payson Weston really started it in America, and he was a walker, heel to walker, strict. And Mm -hmm. then the British, who were not skilled yet in that, they decided that, no, we'll change the rules and allow running, because they were very good runners. So for the period Mm of the late 1800s, you could do either. But then, as that era phased out, the British... Became very good at this heel toe walking. They established what are called centurions, where if you could walk a strict race walk 100 miles in less than 24 hours, you became a centurion. So the British started holding all these walking races. And that's why London to Brighton and back were these walking races. But then after World War II, while the British still were doing walking and they still are now today, America was doing running.
2: What was the course like on this London to Brighton? Was it on the roads or was it off-road through the fells?
0: It was road. Uh, Again, in those early years, think of ruddy dirt roads that were used by horse carriages and so forth. And then the automobiles started using it. And eventually they started paving sections of the road. And it varied in distance over the years, Uh, 52, but it became as much as 55 miles as they had to change highways. But they stopped the race because there was just too much traffic Mm. on those roads.
1: Dave, you've got a number of races in that book. It's fun to look through. There's plenty of pictures and research, and you do a comprehensive review of the topic. If you were on a bus and Scott and I were riding next to you, we've talked about two. Which is the next race you would want to bring up to tell us about that maybe would intrigue us? I
0: think the most fun race and the wildest race— And the one that shocked me was this Mount Baker Marathon Mm. that was established in 1911. Why it was put together is that the Chamber of Commerce wanted to attract tourists to come to Bellingham, Washington, and get to Mount Baker. Mount Rainier in Washington was getting all the press, and at that point it became a national park, but Bellingham thought they had just as good a mountain. So they had two trails that went up Mount Baker. And they really wanted to figure out which was the best or fastest trail to use. And so somebody had the idea, well, why don't we have a race? But this wasn't just an ultra race. They started it in the city of Bellingham down on the Puget Sound. And they gave runners two options, Model T Ford's. (laughs) <laughs> to get to a, a, one of the trailhead on rugged dirt roads. In 1911, these automobiles were not good. <laughs> you know, they would break down. Or you could take a train. So it would be further to go on the train. And I think the trail was longer. So they tried to even it out. So you had a choice of So it was just wild to see these guys starting off to hit the trails, and they would have problems. The cars would break down, and then they'd try to hitch a ride with another crew. (laughs) They ran up to the summit of Mount Baker. It was in August, and they started at night, so the surface would be frozen and a little easier to go up than post-holing your way up to the top of the mountain because there was snow. And they would not dress themselves well for the freezing cold (laughs) at the top. They looked like they were running in their underwear. They truly did. (laughs) And they would have a checkpoint person at the summit that would wrap them in a blanket and make them rest for five minutes and then send them on their way. The guy who was leading the race that got to the trailhead the first was the one who took the train, one of the ones who took the train. And so he got on the train he said, ah, I I got this. Well, the problem is his train, as it's going back really fast, hit a bull and derailed. (laughs) And he finally got a ride somehow into town. But by the time he did, he had become a second-place one. The first-place one had taken the automobile. So everybody felt sorry for the guy. But the next week, they barbecued up the bull and had a nice feast to celebrate. (laughs) They got they got even so they held this race for three years. The second year, though they had to postpone it, it had a terrible blizzard up there, even though it was done in August, they had to cancel it for a week, and then the third year, they did it again, but one of the runners, as he was coming down, fell into a crevasse Ooh. and disappeared. Wow. He was the brother of the guy who won the first year, and after he didn't show up for you know a couple hours, they went searching for him. I think he was in it for several hours. His first thoughts when he fell into the crevice is that darn it, I don't think I'm going to finish the race. <laughs> <laughs> <You know? laughs> he had no way of getting out. They talked to the, the last runner who saw him and figured out approximately where he was, and yelled and eventually, they were lucky, using footprints, figured out where he was, hauled him out with a rope, took him down. They did have an aid station about halfway up the mountain. He recovered well. He didn't have uh, any serious injuries. But that was the last year of the race, although it wasn't canceled because of that incident. uh, It was just hard to get sponsors. So that is the earliest trail ultra I have found in the United States.
1: 1911, what kind of lights would we see runners with? Uh, We have it on our head, on our waist. We could hold something. What were people using then?
0: I did put that in the book and they were miners lights. You lit them. Uh, they had a flame in them. It was a dangerous thing they were doing and very yeah. primitive primitive lights back then.
1: Puts a whole new meaning to refueling at the aid station.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
1: So I wonder how the community changed. If we're out there right now as a bunch of recreational runners supporting one another and helping one another, and I've got some trail aid in between aid stations, and and here's some advice that might help you because I'm passing it along from someone else. I wonder if that was the same type of trail culture and community back in the day when everybody is laced up to get a podium so they can get that win.
0: Yeah, it was all word of mouth back then. That continued until the late 70s. Some running books started to be published. I just did an episode on Gary Cantrell, Laz. And when he started running in the 70s, when he read a book, he was shocked to know that you could walk during races (laughs) and (laughs) not just run until you couldn't run anymore, and then you had to walk. He said it changed his running life once he learned that you could intersperse walking with your running. And that's a lot what was happening and being learned in the 70s for ultra distances.
1: So you brought up Gary uh, Cantrell, and you do cover Barkley Marathon in the book. Let's talk a little bit about that, because I would imagine there's somebody out there that's never heard of it, and I bet you there's some information about that race that you know that you can share with us, that the people that have heard it will be surprised too, because I was as I read the book. To me, what's just fascinating
0: is not just how difficult that race is, but it's the history around the course there that there's an infamous prison that the runners actually now run through. It isn't a functional prison now, but it was when the Barclays started. It was just a terrible prison. I mean, hundreds of prisoners died while they were in that prison because in the early 1900s, they would make the prisoners mine coal in the coal mines on the Barclays course. That way, they could make money and profit off these prisoners. Yet they didn't treat them very well, so several hundred would die over those years. What is on the Barkley course are all these mines and all these old trails where the prisoners would have to hike up Frozen Head to get to some mine each day, and they would go into these mines. As part of that chapter, I include quite a few pages on the history behind the miners and the prisoners and the things that were happening before the Barclay. And of course, there's the infamous prison break of 1977 when James Earl Ray, who was the assassin of Martin Luther King Jr., he was in the prison. And he always tried to escape, and he had successfully escaped from other prisons. Uh, But his 1977 escape was infamous as he was out on the Barkley course for at least three days and was finally caught. And so that's what got Gary's attention when he thought, wow, he got caught. He didn't go very far. He actually did go pretty far. He had helicopters (laughs) circling above him during the day all the time. He couldn't couldn't travel during the day, so he had to travel at night on that crazy Barkley course and... Mm -hmm. uh, up and down the mountains and so forth. And that got Gary's attention. And so he used to backpack with a friend in that area for many years. And they found on a map a boundary trail that the Civilian Conservation Corps created probably back in the 30s. And he wanted to try to see if he could backpack it all in two days. And it was a 25-mile loop. So he did that in the 80s. The park service people there said, there's no way it's possible. (laughs) <laughs> because it wasn't maintained, there's a lot of deadfall, and, and it was really rugged. But he and Carl Hen, Raw Dog, they made it, and then they told the rangers, says we have some friends who are really going to like to do this. So, <laughs> so they started the race back in 1986, originally as about a 55 miler. So I go through the early years until somebody actually finished the hundred mile version of it.
2: In recent years, the Barkley Marathons have become better known. Uh, There was a movie made about them and articles have been written and all that sort of stuff. But when I first started running, which is fairly recently in the last couple decades, it was a mystery. Can you talk about that? The entry process was very different. I mean, Lazarus Lake made this race not only a hard race, but a hard race to get to know or even get into. Can you talk a little bit about that?
0: Yeah, he's a character. I'm the director for the American Ultra Running Hall of Fame, and I inducted him into the hall a couple weeks ago. And what's interesting is I made some Facebook posts about him. Those posts have been seen by over 2 million people across the world. (laughs) That's crazy. Uh, Wow. Wow. It went viral. I've never had posts go that viral. So there's a fascination my latest podcast episode on Ultra Running History Podcast, I go through the history of Gary before the Barkley mm. because all these things were, I think, rattling in his mind. <laughs> he was writing about some principles in the ultra running magazine about things that he actually later implemented in the Barclay. He had a column almost every issue that was called from the South. And one column was on the toughest ultra. And he had the opinion that the toughest ultra was not just an ultra on a very difficult course. He said there needed to be some mental puzzles in it, something to make it even harder. And so when you think about the books where they would have to go to find certain books along the course, that adds to how hard it is. It isn't marked. Well, and the mystery and the lore. So when, once the Netflix movie came out, The Race That Eats, eats Young, that got a lot of attention. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's when media wanted to start coming to the race. And Gary had many opinions about media. He wrote about this again in Running magazine well before the Barkley. He thought media in ultra running could either help it or hurt it. It could help it by getting some attention, but it could hurt it by making it look like a circus. And certainly if we if he had media at the Barclay every year, you know, you could think of what the articles would be about. It'd be about that this is crazy, this is a circus and this is a terrible thing and so. It's a fascinating race. The mystery of how to enter it and the way he changes the course all the time. And there's no published map except those who come to it and so forth. It just makes it just a fascinating race to learn about.
1: Well, he starts it by blowing a conch, right? And, and he lights yeah. a cigarette, but you're sitting there in your tent, ready to go with your gear and just waiting for the sound right. of the cigarette and and all the pieces, and you don't really get an idea of the course until a certain period of time before the race starts. That means you can study it and kind of look at some things to get some background. And there's a term you brought up a moment ago, and I've got to call you out on it, not you, but just we've got to discuss it. And since it's a history podcast here today, uh, I'll talk about newspapers. And for those that weren't around when there were newspapers, they came out every, every day. And on Sundays, they had comic strips. And you'd look through there, there were <laughs> color pages. So this is history for folks. And in that section of the comics, there was a a little section I remember as a kid that was, which one of these things don't belong? And you compare two pictures and you you'd see one and look, that one doesn't have a clock or that one does. And so one of the things that I heard that doesn't belong is fun run. How do you use the word <laughs> fun run in this race? What do you mean? He's being sarcastic.
0: It's not fun, (laughs) but it's being able to finish three loops within a certain time period. It's called the fun run. He didn't establish that name early on. You got to understand Barkley wasn't his first race. He started other races. In fact, one he held for several years. It was called the Idiot's Run. (laughs) Um, It was a road and trail course that he tried to get as many hills in it as possible. So it wasn't level. It just went up and down and up and down and up and down for 107 miles. Uh, And he would kind of mock Western states. He said, yeah, there's this race out west that thinks they're the toughest race, but I think ours is tougher. And it it turns out it probably was, it was 14 miles further. (laughs) And and so he would create these races. Later, he did the race across Tennessee. But all of these races that he would make in Tennessee were part of his love for the roads and the trails in Tennessee.
1: But before we leave Barkley, let's talk about the entry fee for that race.
0: At first, it was like five cents a mile or something like that. And that's where the fee was. He never was trying to make money, but he hasn't been a rich man. He's an accountant and at times has been unemployed, but he's never charged much for his races. And so he would have some funny entry fee that he would ask people to pay. But after a while, in addition to entry fees, he would have them bring things that he needed. For example, if he needed a new shirt, He would have all the first timers
1: (laughs) bring him
0: a shirt or socks or or so forth. You know, they would have traditions like they would uh, cook chicken before the race uh, from one of the nearby chicken farms. I think it was done by Barkley, the the namesake of the course, would bring the chicken. And a lot of times you see pictures of a cake that would have on it. Good luck, morons. (laughs)
2: That's great. Hey, uh, I want to get into another one that I had never heard of, the Redwood Indian Marathon. Tell us a little bit about that. How did you come to know that? And tell us a little bit about the history of that and the significance of why you included that in this book.
0: That one, somebody pointed out to me. I had never heard of it too. And so one of my listeners said, hey, why don't you do one on the Redwood Indian Marathon? What's that? I did some research and, again, found lots of newspaper articles about it. And so this one was in 1927. They had just completed the Redwood Highway in California that went from San Francisco or across the bay clear to Oregon and went through a lot of the Redwood forests. And they were trying to get, again, publicity to get people to drive this new highway, which, again, back then was dirt road. Back then in the 20s, Native American runners were becoming pretty famous, and people were recognizing that that these indigenous runners were really good. So somehow this group got the idea, well, we have a race of over 400 miles and have the requirement that you had to be a Native American to enter it. And so the different counties along the way would try to find individuals that they would sponsor and put in the race. Eventually, it's really two tribes, the Karuks that were up in Northern California, and then the Zunis in New Mexico. It was a point-to-point race, and it went through all of these towns, and it went on for at least a week. These are all young guys, 18, 19 so the chapter I put in kind of gives a day by day who's in the lead, and they would have, of course, support cars going along. Although what happened in a couple towns is that you know, they'd have a, a lot of fun with it. Sometimes they would dress somebody up to look like one of the runners. And before the runner really came into town, they would put on a hoax and get the whole town screaming and cheering for <laughs> one of their locals. Uh, (laughs) That's running uh, through the town that happened in two occasions. And so it would confuse the whole town whether that was the right person or wasn't. So all these fun things would happen along the way. And, you know, they tried to train for this race, uh, but some of them weren't as well-trained as others. They held that race for two years, uh, 1927 and 1928.
1: We've learned a lot of things about trying to survive those longer races, the 100 mile and some out there at 200 miles. But they came in probably not with a lot of experience of running 480 miles over a week's period. They must have been very intuitive. They must have had great insight and being great problem solvers without a lot of experience or this knowledge passed down of how do you run successfully 480 miles? If we went out there to do it, we'd want to try to gather as much information as possible so we could survive. I wonder what the finish rate was for those guys.
0: About half of them finished, if I remember. Some of them weren't very successful. <laughs> they had terrible <laughs> problems with their shoes and blisters. and But they were motivated because there were prizes at the finish. And in fact, the winner earned enough money. Before he even left town, he bought a brand new
2: car.
1: He wasn't about to use his feet to get home. He said, I'm buying a car.
2: Davey, you in your list here in the, in the back, the reference list, you mentioned that the JFK 50 is the oldest ultra race in the United States that's still being run. Uh, Tell us a little bit about the origins there and and the significance of that race.
0: Why it started is in 1963. That's when a 50-mile craze happened because John F. Kennedy had made some comments about wondering if his officers could do a 50-mile test on foot to finish in a certain number of hours that Theodore Roosevelt had originally had a requirement way back when. So he just made this comment and actually asked one of his generals or colonels or someone to put together a test, and it leaked out that this was happening. And an article was published, and within a day, somebody in the public went out and said, I'm going to try to finish 50 miles. And so this craze started happening all over the country and even the world. I would say tens of thousands of people in 1963 tried to walk or run 50 miles. They became ultra runners. One club in Maryland put together for their boys, his name was Buzz Sawyer, who was a very accomplished runner. He decided that he would put together a 50-mile race, which is pretty close to the same course that the JFK 50 runs today. The first ones that were in that 1963 race, and it wasn't really a race, they treated it as a hike, where all kids And they would carry sack lunches and stop at stores along the way. A few of them were successful. Buzz had no intention on continuing the race. But the kids came to him the next year and said, please, can we try this again? (laughs) And so they did it again, a little more organized that year. And so for many years, four or five years, it was just a club event. And then they started to open it up to the public. And then by the early 70s, it got attention and many of the best ultra runners in the country would come and run in it. Its biggest year was in the early 70s and there was over 1,500 starters. So the chapter I have goes through the very first years. And kind of follows about who these people were and how successful they were, even the first women who were able to finish it. A nice tale about, yeah, the oldest Ultra in America is the JFK 50. The book, Classic Ultra Marathon Beginnings, covers nine of these races and put together how did they begin?
2: So Davey has a library of books that he has written. It is amazing. Uh, Don commented that there's pictures and diagrams and maps that pertain to these races. There's multiple pictures on every page. That intrigued me to to get in. It wasn't just reading. It was also (laughs) looking at these maps and looking at some of these characters that he describes and talks about. You can find out more at ultrarunninghistory.com or crockettclan.org slash blog. Davey, thanks for coming back. Just real quick, where would one find your library of books? How can they get a hold of them?
0: Probably the best place to go is just go to Amazon and if you search for ultra running history and probably Davey Crockett, you'll at least find one of the books. So they're organized into, on Amazon, a series. So there's seven books in the series that you can get in paperback or hardcover. And for my Grand Canyon Rim to Rim history book, I did an audio book on it. And that's that book is the most popular of all the books.
2: Davey, thanks again. We appreciate all the work that you put into this. And it really does, every time I read one of your books, I feel connected to the past a little bit more and kind of makes me swell with pride that i'm walking in the footsteps of of people that are way tougher than me so thank you for doing all that hard work for us
0: thank you for having me that's exactly what i hoped people would feel (laughs) Mm, with that this is davy crockett and this is the ultra running history podcast I hope you run fast and far, enjoy life, get outdoors, and most of all stay safe and don't take unnecessary chances.